Good afternoon and welcome to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors Land Use and Economic Development Committee. I'm Scott Weiner, the chairman of the committee. To my left is Supervisor Malia Cohen. Our committee vice chair, Supervisor uh, Jane Kim, will be joining us shortly. Uh, our clerk is Andrea Osbury, and I want to thank SFGTV uh, for broadcasting today's hearing, specifically Charles Kremenak and Jesse Larson. Uh, Madam Clerk, are there any announcements? Yes, please silence all electronic devices, completed speaker cards, and copies of any documents to be included as part of the file should be submitted to the clerk. Items acted upon today will appear on the December 16, 2014 Board of Supervisors agenda unless otherwise stated. Thank you very much. And Madam Clerk, will you please call item number one? Item number one is a resolution granting permission to occupy a portion of a public right-of-way at 157 24th Avenue. And Nick Elsner from the Department of Public Works is here for item one. Mr. Elsner. Good afternoon, Chair Wiener, Supervisor Cohen, Nick Elsner with the Department of Public Works. Uh, this is a request um, to basically <clears throat> construct portion of a garage in the public right-of-way. Uh, this is a very unusual portion of the public right-of-way. It's on 24th Avenue between Lake and West Clay Streets. There are two other properties um, which have a very similar situation where their garages encroach. The actual public sidewalk is located about eight feet above the roadway. So the sidewalk oops, extends above, above the proposed garage. It's over the proposed garage. And um, we received the request. This was ruled in conformity with the general plan at the planning department. Uh, Public Works had a hearing on this back in July, and there were no objections raised. So um, we recommend a, there will be an annual assessment fee charged, and we recommend approval of this uh, encroachment. Okay, thank you, Mr. Elsner. Uh, if there are no questions, we will open item number one up for public comment. Uh, I have one public comment card. Um, uh, Brent McDonald, come on up. Good afternoon, committee. Uh, my name is Brent McDonald. I'm the architect uh, for Ms. Christina Baker, and I'm here to answer any questions, but I think Nick kind of explained everything, so. Great. Thank you very much. Is there any additional public comment on item number one? Uh, please come forward if you have public comment. Good afternoon, Mr. Chair Kim. You look so lovely today. So, uh, also, you look like Chad Clappy. So, Scavina, of the land use, the geographic land use of the city plan wise of development progress, step by step, we call lots of uh, such a, a match of this uh, set climate trend. Because I must say, of, of all people talk about time trend, the making of time trend should be better. So a person who does make the time trend definitely will be in fit of the time trend. Is there any additional public comment on item number one? Seeing none, public comment is closed. Uh, colleagues, could I have a motion to forward item one to the full Board of Supervisors with positive recommendation? Okay. Second. And without objection, that will be the order. Madam Clerk, can you please call item number two? Item number two is a hearing on the Transbay Transit Center and Downtown Extension Platform Compatibility. Uh, thank you. And Supervisor Kim is the author of item 
two, and I'd like to add my name as a co-sponsor to that hearing request. Thank you, Chair Weiner, and I'm actually really glad that it's coming before um, the Land Use Committee today um, for obvious reasons and um, that it impacts transportation and transit overall for the region and certainly for San Francisco, um, but also because um, on Land Use Committee we have members of both um, the Caltrain Board and the um, MTC as well, and I think it's quite appropriate that um, this is going to be heard at um, before this committee. Um, so as as, as many of our transportation players know, um, as we move forward with um, high-speed rail and the electrifi electrification of Caltrain, there's been a lot of discussion on how we can ensure shared compatibility of vehicle and also platform heights um, in the near-term procurement decisions um, by both agencies, Caltrain and high-speed rail, um, which will both help us um, supplement and drive capacity and oper operational reliability and flexibility of a blended high-speed rail Caltrain service at Transbay and for the entire Caltrain high-speed rail blended service corridor um, into the foreseeable future. Um, Caltrain and the high-speed rail authority and our regional partners um, should be making a should be making compatibility a policy imperative um, and cooperating and developing both technical and operational solutions. Um, this again is just a hearing. Um, it's an informational hearing um, with our multiple agencies. Certainly um, I know the city and county of San Francisco has a strong interest um, in, in certain policy imperatives moving forward um, and this is an opportunity for us to hear from all of the agencies on how discussions have going, been going thus far and we know that actually a lot of headway has been made um, over the last um, couple of months and I want to appreciate appreciate all of our agencies um, for working so closely together. And I think through the presentations, we'll understand some of the complexities, um, both the technical complexities of making this um, uh, a blended um, system with um, compatible um, vehicle and platform heights, but also figure out what the pathway is um, to get to a space where we are really building um, a system that is going to last us for decades and decades into the future. Um, and so I just want to recognize, I think, the effort that has already been made on a regional level by both agencies, and we really look forward to um, the update that will be happening today. And I did want to give an opportunity for my colleagues um, on Land Use Committee to make opening remarks as well. Uh, thank you, Supervisor Kim, for first of all, for calling this hearing today. Uh, I think this is a very important uh, hearing. And, and this particular uh, issue about the compatibility of the vehicles um, is important in and of itself, but I think it's also uh, part of a broader picture of the um, critical importance of all the changes that we're going to be seeing with Caltrain with the electrification of the system, uh, the vehicle replacements, and ultimately the, um, the blending with, uh, with high-speed uh, rail. Um, Caltrain is uh, ultimately uh, incredibly important uh, regional uh, rail line. It is only going to become more and more important. We've seen the ridership increase by, I think, something like 50 percent in the past number of years, and that ridership is going to continue uh, to go up. And it is important that um, all three uh, counties and the region as a whole work together um, with all of the agencies to make sure uh, that Caltrain is meeting the needs of the system. Uh, we know we have a lot of work to do to get the system electrified, to get the vehicles uh, replaced, uh, to make sure that, uh, that the improvements and the increases in capacity for Caltrain as well as high-speed rail 
are uh, driving housing production as well so that we're working together all three counties to make sure that all three counties are really helping to meet the uh, the housing needs uh, of the Bay Area. Um, we have a, a, we're in a dire situation with housing and uh, what better way to really plan for housing than when we're doing a massive upgrade to an important rail line uh, in terms of having more transit-oriented development. Uh, we know we have a lot of work to do to make sure that we get the Fourth and King rail yards uh, uh, developed and address that situation. So it's just a lot of work for us to be doing together. Uh, and so when I heard about uh, the possibility of having incompatible vehicles between high-speed rail and Caltrain, I, uh, um, I was um, surprised and I, I met with Caltrain. I know that there are certainly real uh, challenges to that compatibility, uh, but it does seem like there is a path forward, and so I'm really glad uh, that we're going to be talking about uh, these issues uh, today. So again, thank you, Supervisor Kim, for calling this hearing, and uh, Supervisor Cohen. Thank you very much, Supervisor Kim. Please add me as a co-sponsor. For those that don't know, I'm a member of the uh, joint, uh, the JPB, the Joint Powers Board, which is a regional body that connects um, San Francisco County with other counties, San Mateo County, um, as well as um, our neighbors further south. And one of the issues that we have been dealing with on this body has to do with the um, with uh, the flow, the the um, the low floor, the high floorboards of the of the of the um, of the potential cars, and why compatibility is important. One thing that this body, this land use body, has in common is that you have three people that sits on this body that is concerned about regional transportation. Um, Supervisor Kim with J, uh, TJPA, and then Supervisor uh, Weiner with uh, MTC. So we are watching this from a regional perspective. I'm glad to see some of our folks down that come and t attend the JPB meeting also here. Also wanted to give one acknowledgement to the mayor's office. Jillian has really been a remarkable staff person that has particularly been helpful to me as we begin this discussion uh, with the Caltrans staff um, trying to find some parity, some common ground on exactly just uh, the best way to begin to solve this problem. Also want to uh, encourage um, folks that are watching at home to and um, um, just to be mindful that it is my commitment to you to make sure that everything that we're doing is, is trans, has transparency. And sometimes that is more difficult <laughs> than not to actually be able to honor and to perform. So this hearing, uh, Supervisor Kim, is definitely the right step, a, a step in the right direction, and I look forward to hearing this item. Thank you. Great. Thank you. So Supervisor Kim. Thank you. And so um, we do have several presenters um, here today, and I'll be listing the order in which they'll be presenting. Um, first, we have Brian Dykes from the Transbay Joint Powers Authority, um, and then Lisa Fisher, who is an urban planner with ACOM, um, to talk about lessons learned with European high-speed rail. Um, and then um, Casey Fromson uh, will be presenting on behalf of Marion Lee um, from Caltrain. Um, then um, we have Dave Couch um, here from Caltrain. Caltrain as well, and then Ben Tripusis um, from California High Speed Rail um, will be the final presenter. And um, I, I just want to mention again, from because I sit under two hats, under um, my hat as chair of Trans, uh, Trans uh, Bay Joint Powers Authority, we certainly have a lot of concerns about uh, compatibility given that we have a limited number of rail edges um, under the terminal station. And while there might be um, flexibility uh, both at the airport Millbrae um, and San Jose for building additional tracks because there may be more land or an opportunity to build underground, um, we're certainly limited in San Francisco in terms of the number of rail lines that we can bring in under the terminal. And so I think there are concerns if a train breaks down um, or in terms of redundancy is making sure that you know 
our vehicles are able to come in underground into the terminal, um, and if there are issues that they would be able to use any of the rail edges. And I know that's something that has come up frequently from the San Francisco side. That being said, it's a regional um, transportation system, so I know that there are a ton of complexities and challenges um, with all of our stations throughout the peninsula, and I think this will be a good opportunity to have that discussion and explore um, both the cost and the benefits um, of the different options that are before us. So, um, Mr. Dykes, um, thank you for leading us off today. Thank you, Jay. Uh, Supervisor Wiener and Cohen. Um, it's my actual pleasure to be here to press this to launch. Oh, here we are. Ah, it's a wheel. Thank you. Now I've worked it out. Um, I'm the principal engineer at TJPA and I've been involved in this design and project for seven years as a member of TJPA and for some years before as a consultant. Uh, just a quick recap. The elements of the project, the downtown extension starts at grade down near Common Street and the tracks Two tracks are peeled off parallel to 7th Street, go down in a U-section, and reach the beginning of a tunnel portal beyond 6th Street, having gone underneath the strict 6th Street off-ramp from the freeway. Uh, this is now fairly shallow cut-and-cover work to build a station underground station at 4th and Townsend, and then still cut-and-cover until we get to 3rd Street, where we t are turning left into Second Street, and we also arrive at rock or soft rock rather than water and mud, which we've had up to this stage. Uh, so it's a mined tunnel, uh, and actually the best rock is right on this corner. It's actually hard sandstone. It's mined under the corner buildings and down Second Street, and it go stops being a mined tunnel when we run out of rock at the other end uh, beyond Folsom Street, halfway to Howard Street. Also, at that stage, the three-track tunnel starts to widen out for, to six tracks to get into the station, so the, it more than doubles in width, and there's no, no tunneling machine that would ever touch that. Then we go into the Transbay Terminal, which is presently under construction, and the train box in the orange section is, in fact, almost finished. We are now coming up out of the ground. There is a green section at the end, which I'll talk about later, but that's the extension to, in fact, accommodate double-length high-speed rail trains. That is two sets of 220-meter trains to make a 400-plus-meter train. Now, the downtown Fourth and Townsend Underground Station, we have done some recent maneuvering with this station so that, in fact, we can improve the available land so we are now going to build this station with a single platform in the middle uh, with a bypass track on the south side. Uh, this station is only for Caltrain trains to stop and start, not for high-speed rail. So there's the ability for a high-speed train to bypass should there be a stationary Caltrain. Um, the station is now under Townsend Street as opposed to previously it went into the yard sooner. This allows for more development within, if it happens, within the yard.
The current design um, has three platforms, so there are six tracks. This was designed in accordance with the design criteria. Supervisor Cohn. Um, just want to make sure that I have your handout that you're presenting. Did you make copies? I can give you my copy. No, no. <laughs> you haven't got copies of anyone's? I don't have what you're presenting on I, the screen. I don't have. Yeah, I have it, but I have it electronically, so I'm not sure if my um, committee members have received I copies. I didn't print everybody's. I only printed my own. Why don't maybe you could forward it to us, and we can look at it on if the computer. Yeah. yeah. Why don't we do that? Okay. Well, while I'm doing it, you can pass this over. I can do it from here. Oh, here's one. We've got. Is that everything, Lewis? That's Scott. Yeah, that's the whole okay. Thing. Thank you. So this is the layout in the current design, and the extension on the right is, in fact, for two and a half platforms. So the most northern platform is not long enough for a full-length high-speed rail train, but there was never th anything in the business plan to have every single high-speed rail train full-length. Yeah. But it, it evolved. It, 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 it protects it, the... 30-story building, which is, in fact, my office. Um, I don't think we want to develop, demolish 30-story buildings just for one more half-platform. Just so I can recap, now that I, now, now that I have the slide in front of me, you're discussing um, um, uh, the, the Caltrain platform on the right, correct? Yeah. The next slide will help to, to show it because it's in color. Okay. This is the current dedicated platform design, which is what the two railways were working on for a long time until we're now all talking together. Okay. It is, in my opinion, not very efficient because you have two platforms for high-speed rail trains only, which were to the criteria of 50 inches above top of rail. And... The design criteria came straight out of high-speed rail and Caltrain's criteria at the time we started this design. <laughs> we need to change them, in my opinion, because, in effect, you can only put Caltrain into the top platform. And initially, we have different operating sequences over <laughs> periods of 10-year periods. So let me say what I would prefer to see which is PTC with shared platforms. That's to say all the platforms have the same height. And we already built the bottom of this building. We've built the concrete slab. We put all the elevator and escalators for anything between 25 and 50. So we can accommodate anything, as long as we don't go back to an 8-inch platform, in which case we can't get the elevators down. Um, so my is the benefit of this is that we've got probably a 10-year phase before we put extra trains uh, passing tracks down the peninsula with only two high-speed trains. Two high-speed trains do not need more than one platform per hour. So you can get a lot more Caltrain trains in. So the flexibility of how you do it over time, because then they go to four trains, you still don't need four platforms for four trains. So we should be able to share this thing. It has an advantage for startup because any train can get in any platform. So we can store trains here overnight to get started in the morning. It becomes more efficient. 
It gets a higher Caltrain capacity, which for the initial phase is what we're looking. It is flexible to bring the different phases of high-speed rail in. And one other benefit is it does need, not need any special curved crossovers because once a Caltrain train breaks down in the original system, there's nowhere else to go. You can't get back out if that approach fails. It's what known as a single point of failure. So that, that's the plea I've been making for many years, and now I'm pleased to say everybody is meeting together and have been for the last two or three months to genuinely look at solving this problem and coming up with the same height and also the same width. You, because for, mm -hmm. it's very important not to lose that. The width affects the gap between the train and the platform. And if you have two different widths, somebody's going to have a big gap. So I'd hand over this to presentation to Lisa. Thank you, Mr. Dykes. So um, I, I believe that we've forwarded the PowerPoint presentation to both members. Just let me know if you got it. We actually added a few more slides to the end of this this morning, and we're happy to share it um, with all of you. And actually, it's saved to this laptop, too. If if you could, yeah, send that to us. That would be great. Um, so thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. My name is Lisa Fisher, and I'm an urban planner here at AECOM and the Design and Planning Group. Um, hopefully this presentation will be helpful and um, inspiring, and also we're welcome this to be kind of a start of a larger dialogue if you need our assistance um, moving ahead with other examples. Uh, we have the benefit of working around the world in pretty much every discipline that has to do with the built environment. And what we've done today is compiled some lessons learned and some visual examples from mainly projects in Europe um, with one Japanese example. But I think the main thing we just would like to show um, in these images is, oh, sorry, is that better? Okay, sorry. Um, the main topics of accessibility, flexibility, um, capacity, and efficiency that come from these sorts of blended stations. Um, of course, the lower costs that are associated with that. And then I think we'll end today just with a, a quick example from London about the land use and planning um, kind of spin-offs that can happen from having a more compressed footprint when you think about not only the enhanced real estate opportunities, but the urban regeneration potential. Even the walkability and the distance for people um, getting to the train is greatly enhanced when the station itself can have a, a smaller footprint. So all of those things... Um, kind of really have a way to capitalize on these sorts of investments. Um, the other reason that I was asked to come here today is we recently organized a day and a half workshop with the British Consulate and Cambridge University at our office here in San Francisco and we brought together, um, including um, Ben Traposis who's here, um, global experts about rail-led urban innovation. And so we have um, great connections and there's actually going to be a book published um, about some of these findings if you guys are interested at any other point. But just quickly, some images. So Waterloo, London is one of the stations that is being um, connected to the channel uh, through High Speed One. Um, so here you can see the, the blended configuration. 
um, in Cordoba, Spain, and also in Madrid and other places, their tracks um, have all scales of trains coming in at the same platform heights. Um, as well in Germany with the ICE high speed. In Berlin, um, this picture is from 2006. Um, this is blending actually three different train lines, the high speed rail, um, the, the S-Bahn on the, the far track, and their regional train in the middle. Um, two photos from Japan showing the more regional commuter trains on the outside with the high-speed rail track in the middle. And then these last two examples are um, beautiful Calatrava um, showing kind of how these footprints um, can lead to these amazing also architecture footprints both in London and in Belgium. And then just quickly, for high-speed rail, um, this is a little bit about King's Cross, which if you're not familiar, it's an association with the London St. Pancras station there in the upper left-hand corner, um, linking here to the channel. And then also High Speed One is responsible for reaching out to the Kent existing rail. But all of these stations um, are experiencing some level of urban regeneration. The presentation that we had at our workshop was really focused on King's Cross and then also Stratford where the London Olympics occurred. So just quickly, here at King's Cross, a photo from 1894 when you can start to see the footprint that this sort of station took up um, in a very central part of London. And then in 2007, um, still um, a large amount of kind of open, underutilized space and this is basically the approach they took looking at the development parcels that could become available um, within this station footprint as they upgraded all of the facilities. Today this is the illustrative master plan that they have going which is about 8 million square feet of mixed-use development including 2,000 residential units. Uh, they are maintaining 20 historic buildings and structures. Um, actually the new London Google headquarters is one of their main anchor tenants. Um, Forty percent of the site is going to be public realm, which is um, 27 acres. And here we're showing how it kind of revitalized a kilometer-long stretch of canal-side development. So these are some great photos today looking north, which basically downtown London and the, the river is, is to your back, and then how it's envisioned with this amount of development coming in. And then again, here looking south, and you can start to see the financial district, et cetera. And then in the future, this is the potential. So I'm not going to run through the Olympic example, but I'm happy to, to share those with you. But this slide um, was provided to us by the London Authority and gave some kind of quick numbers to the regeneration potential from these high-speed one investments. So Stratford City, again, is the one with the Olympics and then King's Cross that we just looked at. So a total of, you know, over 22 million square feet of development, 63,000-plus jobs, um, almost 8,000 housing units. I have a question. What's the um, what type of housing unit are we talking about? Market rate housing, below market rate, subsidized. It's what a mix. It? It's a mix. I, I'm happy to get the exact breakdown, but they have very similar to San Francisco, looking at affordable housing issues and. And this part of um, London that where this build out took place, is it um, was it in the industrial part? Was it in, like an abandoned part of the city, or was it um, already? Um, an economic hub. King's Cross was an existing station and it was 
already part of the metro line and a more developed part of London. Where the Olympics actually took place is the largest kind of urban brownfield redevelopment project in Europe in recent history. So that was a very industrial, very polluted, um, very low-income neighborhood. Um, the legacy, actually AECOM designed the master plan for the Olympics as well as the legacy plan. So I can, I'm happy to provide any information about that also. Getting a little bit off track, but I, just, I do want to propose this question. Um, so now the, the Olympics have come and gone. How is the site used today? So the legacy plan needed to be developed actually as part of the competition for London to win the site. So it's already transforming into a mixed-use, you know, everyday primary community. So everything was built with that in mind. That was actually a more important part of the, the project, and we actually had a complete sustainability framework that went with that redevelopment also that looked at the social and environmental kind of benefits of the development in the legacy, not in the Olympic part. And this last slide, this just shows High Speed 2 is kind of the next part of this that's going to be spinning off to all these different stations. But um, the rail agency is working very closely with all the local authorities about how to maximize the benefits of each of these. Thank you. So through the chair, I wanted to ask a question to you as well. So when you presented um, all of the previous slides, mm -hmm. um, which I had looked through last night, it wasn't clear to me. So... You're pointing out stations where there is platform compatibility. So whether exactly. it's a local or regional train or high-speed rail, they're all at level platform. Right. And I wanted to show you guys some examples of existing or, you know, stations that were retrofit as opposed to the two new Calatrava ones were built with that in mind from the beginning. I'm sorry, examples of what? The two Calatrava stations at uh -huh. the end in Belgium and in Lisbon, you know, were built with the level platforms from the beginning, or, uh -huh. or they knew that high-speed rail was going to be a part of a part of it from the beginning. And so, in terms of vehicle procurement um, for some of the regional trains, um, was it an issue to find um, companies that were able to produce kind of the higher platform uh, regional trains as well? I would have to actually get back to you about that specific okay. question. Right, but I can, I'm happy to find out more. That'd be okay. great. Thank okay. you. Thank you. Hello, my name is Casey Fromson, and I'll be co-presenting with Dave Couch, who's our delivery director for the CalMod program. Um, this is a little bit of background on the system for, I know... You guys are well-versed in it for, but for folks that are watching. Um, the Caltrain system runs from San Francisco all the way down to San Jose. It covers 77 miles, 32 stations, and right now there's a visual image right now of what our ridership looks like on a weekday. In the peak hour, we're serving many customers, and um, we just broke the 60,000 riders on an average weekday. In the future, we project that to almost double and be over 100,000 by 2040. We also have a robust bikes on board program. Um, our trains are holding up to 80 bikes per train, and, and sometimes those bikes are not even allowed to get on because we're already at capacity. So we have something that's called bike bumps. Shows the number of bikes we have on there today, and another picture of just the capacity needs we have on our system. The Caltrain Modernization Program um, is really made up of two key programs. The first one is the Advanced Signal System, also called CBOS PTC, and that's scheduled to be in service by 2015. I'm the sorry, Casey, do you have slides? Um, I, they were also provided earlier, and um, I don't have an extra set. Did you get the email from April yet? 
It's all in one PowerPoint presentation. And okay. Yeah, we just got that. Okay. Yes, it's just here now. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We, we, it, usually we have all of them on paper for committee members. Okay. So. Thank you. Um, no problem. Uh, the second project is the Peninsula Corridor Electrification Project. So that's scheduled to be in service by 2020 to 2021 timeframe. Following these two projects is when the blended system, a uh, combination of high-speed rail and Caltrain, will be sharing our corridor, and that will be a future project. A little bit more detail about each of those projects. The CBOS PTC project um, really has two main requirements. One is a federal requirement, and it's a safety feature, assuring that trains won't be able to run into each other and making sure that um, minimizes um, any accidents and derailments. The second part is a Caltrain-specific element that we added to the program, and um, that really improves Caltrain performance. Trains are able to run closer together, and we're able to get more throughput and capacity through those benefits. Um, this highlights some of the key milestones. We're preparing for the FRA to visit the testing, and we have been doing the installation for the last um, year, and we are on track to meet that 2015 deadline. The electrification project, we just hit a huge milestone uh, last Thursday. We released the final EIR for this project. So this project includes electrification from Caltrain to about San Jose. We're not electrifying south of that because that is not owned by um, Caltrain. That's owned by Union Pacific. Um, our project hits 17 cities in this San Francisco to San Jose um, uh, area and it really includes two key elements for this uh, electrification so the overhead contact system and then the electric multiple units which are the electric vehicles this project is not environmentally clearing grade separations uh, station improvements anything larger than this we will have a service that includes up to 79 miles per hour which is what we have today an increase of trains per hour per direction and then the the bullets under that are really the key parts. It's because of the performance that we get with these EMUs that we're able to stop and start faster than what we do today. That means in about the same amount of time that we have our trains running from one end to the other, we can almost double the number of stops. We can also do a shorter time frame uh, for those folks that we definitely have people just trying to commute to one side to the other. So Casey, just, um, um, just for the folks that are listening, could you define what an EMU is? Uh, yes, it's an electric multiple unit. So it is an electric train that has power that's distributed in many ways. And so right now our system is a diesel system where there's a diesel locomotive that pulls the train. And so it's not able to have the same uh, acceleration and deacceleration that we would get with EMUs in this type of vehicle. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, and then finally, with this project, it w we will have a mixed service fleet for um, a period of time where we'll continue to run diesel trains and also run diesel trains down to Gilroy where we'll continue to serve those customers. We have several tenants that will run underneath the wires and continue to be on our system that we will also have to integrate, and that's ACE, Capital Corridor, and Amtrak. For our milestones, um, as I said, a big one for the electrification one is the EIR. The final was um, released last last week. Um, we have 35% design from 2008. FONSI is our federal environmental <coughs> clearance. 2012 is when we had a regional funding partner. So that's the nine parties that came together to say we want to support this project and put forward funds for it. Um, we have a contracting method selected, which is design-build. And in 2014, we have the owner's team in place and the request for qualifications as long with, along with the request for information. 
Um, we are updating our funding plan right now. Last month we had an update to the schedule and cost of the program. And we are planning to issue RFPs in 2015 for the vehicle and the design build portion of it. Quick question, where will the diesel trains be running? Um, so eventually in the future we'll need to have those diesel trains as a bridge between the San Jose general area and Gilroy because we're not electrifying that section of the tracks. So they'll just be redirected or rerouted in, down in the southern, southern so part we, of the So we don't have a defined service plan in place because we'll need to have the infrastructure and um, the vehicles and then talk to communities about what the scheduling would be. But when we have an interim period of mixed use, we'll have diesel trains that run our entire line. But when we're fully electrified between San Francisco and San Jose, that will be electric vehicles. And in that southern portion, that's where diesel vehicles will continue to run. So in the meantime, what happens? So with this project, we will get as many electric vehicles as we can and okay. also have some diesel vehicles. Okay. And the plan is once we have uh, secured the funding in place and maximize the usefulness of the vehicles we have out there, we'll have a fully electrified system. And so it will be electric vehicles in that portion between San Francisco and San Jose. So will, will the EMUs be used for baby bullets as well? Yeah, that gets to the scheduling um, uh, issue that we'll need to work with the communities on because we haven't decided if we will do that quick schedule and get to one end to the other as quickly as possible or if we'll do more local stops because there's a lot of communities that want to get as much service as possible. So we'll need to work out what that right balance is but with these vehicles we'll have the capacity and the capability to make those choices which is um, more flexibility than we have today. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, the procurement status. So as I said, we have a method approved. It's a design build. We had an RFQ process, and we have six teams qualified, which I understand is a very good number for us to have competitive bids. On the vehicle side, we did meet with the car builders through a request for information process. And when we talked to them about our system needs and what we're looking for for the capacity and the service and the whole system that we really do touch, um, they had suggested that bi-level vehicles will maximize the capacity on our system. They also said the most common floor height was 25 inches, which is the low one, and, and that's just the most common one that was out there. And for the performance ones, um, the EMU was really the superior method over some of the other types of vehicles that are out there, such as electric locos or or DMUs and that type of thing. Um, and then this is my last slide before I hand it over to Dave. And this is just to show that we really are thinking about the future. This is um, an incremental investment to what's really needed to make sure that the, our entire region um, you know, deserves the transportation that um, is needed and the capacity is there for. So state of good repair, this is always a, an issue for transit operators and we continue to struggle to make sure we have enough funds to keep the base program working. For the CalMod program, this is the one that I outlined where we have the nine parties funding group that's um, put forward funds for the CBOS and the electrification one. And then below that, there's some other very, um, very important projects for our region. I'll just focus on the Caltrain one. Um, having longer trains and longer platforms in the future is something that we're going to want to do to be able to maximize the capacity on our system. When we're sharing our limited system with high-speed rail, we need to make sure that our trains have the capacity and not um, just widening the corridor or sending more down there. So we know this is 
these are important issues and we're starting that process now through um, the vehicle discussions and then also what needs to be environmentally cleared, what community dialogues do we need to have with that and that's a process we're beginning now. Um, but it is kind of a cake layer and this foundation you can build on for any of these other elements. Um, so I do have a question. Actually, I'm not sure if this is best asked to you or Mr. Couch, but um, you had mentioned that the um, the by level um, maximizes capacity. Mm -hmm. But my understanding is also that um, trains that have 50 inch um, uh, the 50 inch platforms have a wider body, and that also increases the number of seats on board too. And have you looked at a comparison in terms of additional seats for a wide body train? Um, versus the more narrow bi-level trains. Yeah, I think Dave is going to touch okay. on this issue a little bit during his presentation. I think for all of them, it's a kind of scale of what's readily available and then what you customize and what fits with the, the system. So he'll go into some of the details, but I think it's really getting back to the analysis. And for all these questions people have of uh, coming back after we've done our due diligence to look at all these different options to show you know, which one makes the most sense from capacity, performance, system-wide issues. Thank you. You're welcome. Good afternoon. As we started to go through our analysis, it rolls, okay. Okay, got it. Get back to the beginning. I apologize. I want to start with what we currently have in service. Uh, it's basically a diesel push-pull fleet uh, with coaches. Uh, we have two different models of coaches, uh, and there are the bi-level and the gallery cars, the bombs and also the gallery. Uh, they board off an eight inches above top of rail platform. Uh, and depending upon which vehicle it is, it has a different number of steps to take you to the main floor level. Uh, when you look at what that translates to in terms of access for ADA compliance, we have several different methodologies that we use. Something is what we call mini highs, uh, which are basically fixed ramps that are at some of the stations uh, that anyone in a wheelchair that needs to board that way goes up that ramp to that higher level. Uh, and then they're helped by the conductor to go ahead and bridge the gap uh, and get onto the train. Uh, the second one shows an onboard lift in part of our fleet. And then the third one, picture at the bottom, is basically a shot uh, that shows what we have for a backup lift capacity, which is a manual lift at the station platforms in case we have a failure of the other devices. One of the things that Casey talked about uh, is the different tenants that we have on the railroad, and each one of those different tenants uh, has a different type of equipment that is utilized with a different boarding height above top of rail. Uh, we have ACE that utilizes two stations. We have Capital Quarter that also uses two stations. And we have Amtrak that goes into one station, all at the very southern end of the alignment. So we have to make sure that whatever we do for the platform solution also accommodates what those issues are and the continued utilization of those stations by our tenant railroads. One of the complicating pieces that are there is the fact that we also have freight running in the corridor. This is something that Union Pacific runs mainly the southern end of the corridor. Uh, they have limited service that comes up to the port in San Francisco. 
but it complicates things because within that parameter and the runs that they make, there are also requirements that are there by CPUC that requires a certain distance between the center line of track and the edge of the platform. Once you go above a six inch above top of rail platform, then the setback that you wind up with leaves basically almost a two foot gap between the edge of the vehicle and what the edge of the platform is. So it's one of those complicating pieces that we're also working through in our analysis. And as you were, in terms of the CPUC issue, is Caltrain, are you pursuing we, we, haven't, we haven't started yet. What we're looking for first is what is that feasible solution. Uh, once we get to the point that we can come to agreement on what that solution is, uh, whether it is a 25-inch high platform or whether it's 48, then that will be the next step is to go ahead and approach CPUC. This is one of their regulations right now. Uh, it's, I believe, 26D, and we will have to get that amended uh, because right now they still have the provision there that I call the old man on the, the ladder rule for the freight trains. Uh, and that's the reason why you have to have that setback once you're above that eight inches above top of rail. So, so we're looking for a one-stop to get back to go ahead and get that changed. How, have there, how long is that process? Um, you know, I really don't know what that timeline will be. Uh, I know that that is something that as we go through the process, uh, as once we get to the point of having agreement on what the platforms will be, then there will be an environmental process that has to go on. The CalMod program did not clear anything for changes to platforms. So there will be a process that I believe high-speed rail would undertake. That would be a several-year process to go ahead and get the approval in an FEIR to go ahead and make the changes to the platforms because that's not something that has been addressed or funded within the current CalMod program. So my hope or expectation would be uh, that during that period that issue could be addressed. CPUC, as with other regulatory agencies, would participate in that EIR process and would provide comments, and that when would be in my time frame, my belief, when that issue could be resolved. Thank you. We're familiar with the acronyms. If you could kind of decipher some of these acronyms that are on, um, on the slide, um, TRA, okay. UPRR, well, I know it, that one may be UPRR, um, I don't know what else is on the slide. Okay. Uh, HSR is high-speed rail. Um, the – I don't want to get that out of the middle. <clears throat> is that the only one? C CPUC uh, is the California Public Utilities Commission. ADA is Americans with Disabilities. That's a federal requirement. Fantastic. Thank you. So then I have a, just a follow-up question about um, why the compatibility discussion is happening right now. Why it is not happening right no, now? No, why it is only happening now. Where it, was this conversation? The, the conversation, as I understand it, um, until about four or five months ago, uh, <laughs> was to go ahead and have those differential platform heights. 
that is what Mr. Dyke showed in the previous presentation as the plan that had been put forward uh, by the, the design of the new downtown transit center, uh, which did show in the illustration that he had that there were two dedicated platform faces that were at a different height than what the four were for California high-speed rail. So that has been the initiation of the conversation over probably the last four or five months. Um, there have been different discussions at other locations along the Caltrain right-of-way uh, where the plan that high-speed rail uh, initially had that I understood was down at, at Deardon in San Jose. Mm -hmm. um, they were going to have an elevated station that would be over the top of Caltrain, so there would not be a platform compatibility problem there. The second station that they were planning on stopping at the peninsula uh, was at Millbrae. And there were several different plans that they were looking at. One was to be an elevated station. Another one was to go ahead and put at least one of the tracks for Caltrain underground um, so that they would be able to go ahead and have those different platforms uh, at the Millbrae station. There had been discussion at uh, at, I believe it's Redwood City uh, as a potential for a fourth stop, um, but it really has been over the last probably four or five months, probably since the June-July time frame, uh, that this really has come to the surface and has been triggered by what has been the requirements for the new downtown transit center. Thank you. Uh, actually, if I could just follow up on that, I, I mean, it seems like a pretty fundamental issue in terms of compatibility and We've known for some time that it was going to be a blended uh, system. That I can't remember what year it was. It was a while ago that that explosion happened, and and well, with the with the blended system. So, I mean, that just strikes me as a pretty fundamental issue, making sure that you have compatibility since we have two different systems that are going to be using uh, these tracks. And so, I think one of the Con concerns that has been expressed uh, in San Francisco, at least, uh, around uh, this issue is, is, is why this wasn't really um, brought up and vetted earlier. I mean, four to five, four or five months, okay, that's, that's great, but I think those conversations should have been happening some time ago because not surprising that with one blended system you would want to have compatibility. And if I, I can just add to that, I mean, at least in terms of how it got highlighted um, to the Trans-Bay Joint Powers Authority is certainly that, you know, as we, there was never a commitment actually to have dual level boarding platforms. It was open-ended what the platforms would look like at um, Trans-Bay Terminal. There was never a commitment to have 50 inches and 25 inches. So I, I don't want that to be out there that that was something that TJP had committed to. There was an openness to figuring out into the future. I, I, you know, from my perspective, it felt like there was some procrastination until the point that we realized that both agencies were going to be going out with RFPs for vehicle procurement, and we realized we're at this, actually we're at, we're hitting a crux at this point where we have to make a decision on platform compatibility, that we can't just have kind of parallel conversations happening in terms of what is best for each agency. Um, and then RFPs go out, and we realize that we've procured two different types of vehicles um, that doesn't allow for the greatest flexibility moving into the future. Now, I, I'm not saying that it's not possible for us to move in, down that 
down that pathway for us to have two different types of vehicles. Um, and, and there are clearly ways to, to make that work in these three stations that we've identified um, that both high-speed rail and Caltrain would be stopping at, um, Millbrain, San Jose, and San Francisco. Um, but I think there are certainly a lot of different factors that will make this a more challenging system into the long term while more affordable um, in the short term for both, um, for at least Caltrain. I, I, it seems like um, there would be additional costs for high-speed rail um, if they were to build additional tracks um, in, in those two stations. So I, I think from our perspective, we're just realizing that we're getting to the point where we have to start the procurement process, and we want to make sure that we um, can open the conversation as much as we can um, to seeing what all of our options are. No, I just want to sort of I, I appreciate that um, uh, perspective, and I, I just want to add to it that uh, you know, this isn't the, the Caltrain work isn't being done in a vacuum. I mean, this is this is a, not just a multi-county uh, agency which has all three counties as as stakeholders, um, but it really it is about high-speed rail uh, in the Bay Area, and it's about all the interconnectivity with all the different uh, systems. And it seems to me that um, decisions that are being made by Caltrain need to always be made not just in full consultation, but taking into account the needs of all the counties and all the systems. This is, this stretch is more and more going to be a back, just an absolute backbone in the Bay Area's transportation system. It's not just one agency's uh, system. It's, it's a system that so much is going to depend on. And so I just want to make sure that going forward, because these issues, you know, you, you never know what issue could come up next. These are very complex projects. Um, that that we won't see these kinds of issues sort of flare up at the 11th hour again, as this one appears to um, have done. And the fact that you had two agencies that were about to go out with RFPs for incompatible vehicles, that's that's um, that that shouldn't happen. So I, I just wanted to make that point. The I, I understand completely, uh, but I also want to assure you that we're working very collaboratively. Uh, with high-speed rail. Those meetings have been going on month in and month out uh, to try to make sure that we identify anything uh, that creates issues. And whether that is dynamic outline for vehicles, whether it is heights, uh, whether it is the power requirements, all of those things are in fact ongoing uh, and will continue to be ongoing. Um, the, the compatibility uh, is a different way of saying level boarding, uh, and there are many ways to achieve level boarding. So if I go back to the slides, those are the key considerations that we have to look at. Uh, you wind up with vehicle performance, uh, the case you talked about earlier, the capability of the desire to go ahead and have the EMUs that have a better acceleration uh, profile, it's more efficient. Our key is capacity. Uh, it's not the long haul, it's the short haul, it's the commuter service, and that's what we get by going to the bi-level vehicle. One of the things we have to be careful of, and it is an issue that uh, was raised a few minutes ago concerning the continued use of the diesel fleet. If we do go to a 50-inch platform at that point in time, uh, our current fleet becomes incompatible with that because of the boarding height for the current diesel fleet. These are all things that we have to work through when we go through the process. Uh, I mentioned earlier about the tenant uh, compatibility where they have a much lower boarding height. 
the California Public Utilities Commission and American with Dis Disabilities uh, requirements all fit into this puzzle. Uh, and then what is that proper height? Is it 50 or is it 25? Concerning the uh, performance and capacity, what we're looking to do, uh, it's a different performance level. We've looked at everything from electric locomotives. Uh, we have looked at EMUs uh, with a single height at the 50-inch. They do not provide the same capacity on a car-by-car -car basis uh, as the bi-level EMUs. So that means uh, that there are less people able to get on. Is that what you Less people that can get on on one car. Uh, we also look at the bi-level uh, having two sets of doors, so that's a better uh, way for people to go ahead and get on and off the vehicle. It's a quicker entrance and exit. Uh, and we're doing further analysis right now to go ahead and determine in conjunction with high-speed rail, is there the capability to put doors in an EMU at two different heights? One that would serve a 25-inch height platform and the other would, that would serve a 50-inch platform. Uh, we're having conversations with the industry. Uh, Mr. Tropis and I met last week uh, with one of the potential car builders, uh, and they're looking now at what the potential is, and we're having more conversations with car builders to find out what can be done uh, with vehicles that they currently manufacture, uh, because we're looking for something that is a modification of something that they manufacture, as opposed to going with a new from the wheels up design. That's a very large difference in what the time frame is in order to get vehicles, and it's also a very big cost difference when you're looking at getting a brand new vehicle that has never been built before. Uh, concerning the diesel fleet compatibility, uh, as I said, the 25-inch boarding height is something that is compatible. Uh, we could use our existing vehicles at that height. <laughs> But once we take the first platform to 50 inches, that eliminates the utilization of our existing fleet for that station. Can I, can I ask you about that just because I, I find that very confusing? Okay. Um, so I understand that freight trains are basically at zero, zero-inch uh, boarding. Is that, is that correct? It, the way that the California Public Utilities Commission has it is that the platform height, which is the distance of the concrete surface above the top of the track, is eight inches. If you have that, you don't have to provide any further setback from the face of the current platform. As you start to increase the height of that platform, then you have to set back that platform at a minimum of 24 to 25 inches if you're under 48 inches in height and more than that if you are above that height. So it starts to counteract what the ADA requirement is and the ADA requirement is that the vehicle has to be within three inches of mm -hmm. the edge of the platform. So you have two competing requirements. Yeah, one no, no, is so the I, state and I understood a, that the, okay. the conflict between CPUC and ADA, that, mm -hmm. that was very clear to me. I guess what, is, what I am not as clear about is why, um, if you have to change the platform height to 25 <laughs> inches anyway, mm -hmm. you know, uh, how are freight, um, how are diesel and freight trains going to move through those um, those stations when that, the platform is you know 25 minus 8 that, so that's something that versus is, 50 versus 8 it, it seems to be the same challenge either what, way. what we were trying to do was to plan for if you want to call it Cal mod 2 uh, it would be that next step that would be in that 10 to 15 year time frame when the environmental process was completed and when funding was identified 
So what we're trying to do is to identify an EMU because the life cycle of an EMU is 30 plus years. Uh -huh. So we were looking for something that we could procure at this time that would continue to serve the eight inch platform heights, but that also would have the capability to transition to a higher height at a point in the future. When, when we had the conversations with the industry this past June, what they told us was if you go to a bi-level vehicle, which is where we maximize capacity on a car-by-car -car basis, that their common manufactured floor height, that boarding height, is 25 inches above top of rail. What we're looking for and have been looking for is a vehicle that is something that has been made before. There's, there's no such thing as going down to the local Ford dealer and buying an EMU, but you can get something that has been made before by a manufacturer. They will have to change certain components of it in order to comply with some of the U.S. regulations, in particular some of the things that may be crashworthiness or Buy America requirements. But it was trying to find something that was a tried and true, a proven vehicle, mm -hmm. and that would allow us to go ahead and transition in the future, knowing that right now we don't have the ability or the funding to go ahead and go forward with what would be a next uh, DEIR and EIR process to be able to go and do the pieces that are there to raise the platforms to 25 inches. So the concept was how do you plan for the future so that you don't preclude that during the life cycle of that vehicle that you will have something that is a higher platform that that series of vehicles couldn't be served by. Okay, so you kind of brought up a, a number of different concepts that I had questions about. So if we go to the 25 inch, um, uh, boarding platform um, vehicles. It's my understanding that they still have to be customized if you do bi-level and two sets of doors. Yes. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. um, so there's still a custom customization issue even with that type of train, but you're saying that at least that type of train has been built before? Is it, that it, there, there's only one set that I know of that's out there um, mm -hmm. that is used on the East Coast. Um, it is not something that is common um, okay. that is available. And that's another thing that we're trying to make sure of is that we don't right. wind up with only one manufacturer uh, that can provide right. a vehicle. So uh, I guess my point of that is that there's still a level of customization that's required even at the 25 inch um, because I know that that was one of the issues that Caltrain had with potentially going to 50 inches is kind of the, the cost if there's not as many companies that build. Um, so that's the one issue. The second issue is I still don't understand why, um, if you're going to buy trains at 25 inches, are, are you going to leave the platforms as if until the, um, the EIR is done? We would leave the platform. The current EIR uh -huh. does not contain anything right. for raising the platform. So if we get the 25-inch platform trains, the stations would all stay the same, and how would passengers board 25-inch trains. Set of steps, exactly the A way that they do and now. What would make going to 50 more challenging in that it, scenario? What what it does, it is not so much the uh, initial train set. Uh, it is what do you do in the transition? Uh, because it's a 10 to 15-year program to go ahead and get to that 50-year 50-inch height. Uh, immediately upon having the new 50-inch height vehicles. 
uh, or, plat or first platform, I should say, that's when you lose the ability to operate the existing diesel fleet. That's one of the complicating pieces. So that's what we're talking to the vehicle manufacturers about right now. What is it that they can do uh -huh. in... But why is it easier with the 25-inch? You still have that 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 constriction if you there have as it, well. The 25-inch the uh, is basically the level for a bi-level vehicle. Okay. I understand that. So my question is, I, I'm not asking about why the vehicles are the way they are. I am just wondering, what, what is the challenge with getting 50-inch trains leaving the platforms as they currently are versus going to 25 inches. So you're leaving all the stations exactly the same. If you're leaving them the same, there is no difference. When you start to make the transition to the higher platforms, that's what makes the difference. So what's the difference between going to 25 and 50 inches? So you said if we get 25-inch trains, I mean 25-inch uh, boarding platform okay. trains, you'll just have a set of stairs, mm -hmm. right, in the meantime. Mm -hmm. And then you can use both the diesel and use them for the for their life, and then they'll mm -hmm. aspire and you'll buy more trains over time. So if you go to 50 inches, what is preventing you from doing the same thing? There's so you'll use a higher set of steps, right? There, there's nothing that's preventing you from doing it on the vehicle side. What's preventing you from doing it is on the platform side. That, right, it, so it, that's it, my it, question. So what is the difference it, on the it, platform it, side between doing 25 and 50-inch 50 50 vehicles? It's utilization of the existing fleet. I, I, I'm not sure if I'm asking the question in a way that makes sense. Maybe that. I'm missing so the because I understand that you are, what the original proposal is for Caltrain mm -hmm. is that um, you want to mix in your current <laughs> fleet mm -hmm. along with 25 inches and, and keep works. the stations exactly the same and provide a set of steps for when the 25-inch trains roll in, right? Correct. So let's say you went with the 50-inch trains, not the 25-inch. Same thing, you kept some of the diesel trains, mm -hmm. but now you have steps that go to 50 inches. Correct. So is that possible? Yes. Okay, so, so the challenge, I mean, it seems to me from so, the I, layman's I perspective, because I'm not an engineer, that either so way, the same, I, same set you, of challenges. Okay, one there, second, she's sure. still talking. I'm, that's okay. Um, so if we get a 25-inch EMU vehicle, it's almost identical in the floor height to one that we have today, which is just one step to get into it. And so both our diesel system and our future one would be able to serve our platforms. And if we raised up the platforms for level boarding at that height, then you just get rid of that step and then we would also have a full EMU. Now, if we get a train which is being talked about that would have a couple different door heights, so one still at that 25 inches, because that's where people will have to board in no matter what. You can't jump just from a 50-inch door to where we are today. We'd have to have double sets of doors at a low level and a high level. And so that's the customization that would be different than what we are looking at at uh, EMU today. And if we do that, that's where we have to look at the trade-offs for if there's any capacity issues, if you have to have maybe an internal lift when you make the adjustment later on. So the difference is um, that we'd have to be adding extra doors then to do that 51. You can't get a vehicle today that's just 50 inches and serve the platform today. Or if you did, it would have to have, I think, I, I don't know if those are out there, but that would have a huge um, stairs that would be very, very steep. And I, I'm not sure if that even happens there. Okay. And so those are, we're looking at the different but, car builders to figure out yeah. what we can do to serve what we have today and then the future of these different heights. But the answer to the question really comes to the platform transition. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. That's the answer to the and question. Then, and then the third question I had, and I, I think uh, my colleagues have questions as well. Um, 
is is the question of the um, the capacity. So I, I understand that Caltrain wants to go to bi-level. And sorry, I'm asking so many questions. I, I'm just really trying to understand okay. from an engineering perspective as a layperson, okay. you know, what what the factors are and the decisions. Um, so at bi-level, there's greater capacity. My understanding is that the 50-inch trains have a wider body. Um, and so you can get more seats in that way as well. So have you looked at what the seat differential is between a wider body train and a bi-level narrow body yes, we train? Have. Mm -hmm. you, you basically wind up with five seats across in a single level, um, and it's a two plus two uh, in a bi-level. Uh, and I don't have the data with me, um, but on a vehicle, on a car-by-car -car basis, uh, it is higher for a bi-level vehicle than it is for a single-level vehicle. How much higher? I don't have those. I don't. I, I want to say that it's somewhere in the 15 to 20 percent difference. Okay. Thank you. Um. Uh, so, uh, a couple of things. First of all, so I, I just want to understand: is uh, the 25-inch still on the table? Is it still possible that Caltrain is going to go ahead right, with 25 inches? Hold on a second. Even though high-speed rail is is going to have a different Right now we're looking level. at what's possible at 50 inches. The first process that we went through during the month of November was to find out if there were any fatal flaws in going to a 48 to 50 inch height. There are no fatal flaws to going to a 48 to 50 inch height. We are still going through the process to evaluate the 48 inch height and we are still looking as we go through that process and listening to the car builders about the 25 inch height. There will be a policy decision that the JPB will be doing based upon the recommendation and results from that study. Right. I clearly the JPB will make the ultimate uh, decision, but at this point staff is is driving at least the recommendation. And so the question is, is staff still considering recommending uh, uh, 25 inches? So what staff is committed to, and this was kind of jumping ahead to our last slide, is that we're going to do a trade-off analysis because there's a lot of questions that are out there. What does it mean to have a car that looks like this or the flexibility you get with a platform that looks differently? And we are committed to coming back to all of our funding partners. We meet with them, that MOU group, every single month. Um, back to the, our board and back to anybody that's interested in learning more about the issue. So on this slide, it shows that time frame of what we're doing right now. We're doing the technical analysis to figure out what the different trains look like and what are the different capacities out there and what should be the trade-offs we look at to come back with a trade-off assessment so that everyone understands um, what it is that we could be asking for and what that means for the system, and then to have a policy decision in the May, um, March to May timeframe. And, and we're fully aware that all three counties are going to weigh in on this. And as part of our process of always letting people know what we're doing, we meet every single month with elected officials from the 17 cities with a CalMod group. So we've talked about level boarding, you know, over the last year with this. And we're going to continue to go back to that group and our staff level groups our funding partner groups, and this seems like a very good committee to stay in the loop as well, what the process is, so everyone can be informed at the end of the day, and this is really just the starting point for us to lay out what that analysis is. Okay, thank you for that. Um, and then in terms of um, you, another point that you would raise is that as soon as you go to 50 inches, the current diesel vehicles have to then all go out of service mm -hmm. other than the Gilroy stretch. Correct. And and the reason for that is that you can imagine that a door is at 
that 25 inches. And if you have a platform that's much higher, you can't walk up to get to the platform. Right. If it's the other way where the platform is lower and the door is higher, you can have steps. Right. But that's and I, understand, I mean, I, and as I mentioned at the beginning, I know that there are definitely challenges around uh, having a compatible uh, vehicles. Um, but ultimately, uh, we're talking about a whatever, 100-year investment or whatever it is. And, and uh, I, I wouldn't want the tail to wag the dog in terms of saying, well, the, these current soon-to-be obsolete vehicles aren't going to work under the system. Therefore, we have to have a permanently incompatible uh, system. So even though I do acknowledge that there, it, that is certainly a logistical uh, challenge. And in, in terms of capacity, um, what are uh, what are what is Caltrain considering in terms of uh, increasing capacity? If the agency goes with the 50 inches, and there's some seat losses, mm -hmm. where where can you make up part or all of that? There, there's two pieces to that. Um, the first is the first policy decision uh, will be in a balance of what are seats, what are bathrooms, and what are bikes on board because that really will determine what that ultimate capacity is. On part of our fleet, we have a bathroom on each car. On part, we have two, one at each end. Uh, we currently have 80 bikes on one part of our fleet and 48 on another. So that will be a policy decision that will go back to JPB yeah. of whether they want to maintain those at what level. That will determine how many seats are there. The piece that is there is that this is intended to be, in the current CalMod program, a 75% replacement, not a 100% replacement. That's why the diesel police is still there. We're having conversations with high-speed rail of if we do wind up with a 50-inch platform, that that would provide the potential for them to provide additional funding to go to 100% six-car trains. That will then get us so that we have the capability of running 100% six-car trains for the length of the alignment, uh, six trains per hour per direction. The next capacity bump that you get beyond that is when you go to an eight-car train. An eight-car train will require not only the addition of cars to the consist, it also will require the lengthening of platforms, and then depending upon what we have decided uh, in the interim on the height of the platform, also the heightening of those platforms. Okay. Um, in, in terms of the, the restrooms, so right now every car has one or even two restrooms on it? That's what we're looking at now is we put a survey out there uh, to our customers that closed on the 17th of October. We're compiling the results of that survey right now uh, to go ahead and come back to the board uh, with a presentation information only in January uh, that will provide the results of that survey uh, to go ahead and see which of our customers preferred having one, two, or six bathrooms on board. And then that will turn into a policy decision by the board in terms of how many we will have on board. Right. I mean, it's an interesting thing because so Caltrain, from if you take it from one end to the other, it's a little over. Well, I guess it depends on which train you're riding. Mm -hmm. um, generally, most people are on that train for an hour or less. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it's pretty common on BART to be on for people can be on for a pretty significant period of time. In fact, if you're out uh, by the beach in San Francisco, you might be on Muni for uh, some, uh, all too close to an hour. And uh, none of those vehicles, they have exactly zero bathrooms on any vehicle in the BART system, in the Muni system. 
And so when you're talking about long-haul trains, clearly you have to have restrooms for people. Um, but I, I, I'm, I'm glad that that is being considered because uh, uh, these are all trade-offs. There's a relationship that is there to the number of seats that is, that is absorbed by a restroom, and that's eight seats. Uh, and it's the same thing as a relationship to any individual who brings a bike on board. Uh, that's the equivalent of two seats, one for the bike and one for them. So those are the, the balance points and the pieces that we'll be bringing back to the board uh, with the results of what the outside survey was. So is it possible that staff will recommend removing bike capacity on the trains? I do not know what that recommendation will be. Okay. I do not expect that it will be removing bikes. Uh, but we have not finished the analysis of the survey right now. Okay. Yeah, and I, it's really a com sorry, I just jump in the survey. So it'll be the survey coupled with technical analysis. So not just whoever said the most of one item, that's what we're going to do right. as part of the survey. <laughs> that was one feedback method for us to really reach out to the customers. And we had over 4,000 uh, responses to the survey. So we had a, a good turnout. Yeah. I, I would, I, I, I hope that the recommendation isn't to remove uh, bike. Uh, capacity. I think we need to be moving in that direction of making it easy for people uh, to be uh, multimodal in a non-auto way, and, and combination of the sort of the last the last mile problem uh, is is a big one. So, uh, great, thank you. Those are some of the pieces that we try to acquire in the survey in terms of alternate ways or how close people were from their home or their work to be able to go ahead and get to Caltrain. So we're looking at all those pieces. Thank you. Um, all right, you jump to the next steps. Um, as I said, we're, we're going through the process in December looking at criteria. Uh, we'll be going through in the January and February what the trade-offs are uh, to the different alternatives, be it 25 or 50. Uh, and then it will come back for policy decisions uh, in the March through May timeframe. There will not be an RFP issued by Caltrain uh, to buy vehicles uh, until it reaches a conclusion of those policy decisions. I'd be glad to answer any other questions. Supervisor Kim? No, I just want to say thank you for all of this work and thank you for asking, uh, answering a lot of the technical questions that I didn't understand around um, platform uh, compatibility. I do really appreciate that all the agencies are, are working together to figure out how we can get to a, um, a place that is in the long term, I think financially efficient, but also um, uh, for all of our agencies combined, um, but also for um, our, our capacity issues as well. And I, I, I do want to say that I completely understand the situation that Caltrain is in. I know that moving to, a uh, if we were to move into a 50-inch um, platform uh, vehicle procurement, I know that that does raise a lot of costs um, for Caltrain um, on the front end. And we as a regional body and a state really need to figure out how to meet that gap if we are able to get um, to that place in terms of the the platforms, I, I'm sorry, the, the station, um, um, the changes, um, but also in the sense that you may have to procure a whole fleet at once, which may lower the cost per vehicle, um, but obviously is, is a cost that you don't have um, sitting in, in, your, in, your, in your budget right now. And so I really want to appreciate that despite um, those fiscal challenges that we're at least exploring um, what this potentially looks like. And I think it's certainly upon the region and high-speed rail um, to figure out how we can come in and support um, this option because it certainly will lo lower costs for high-speed rail in the long term um, as well. Um, so if we are going to raise the costs up front, 
but lower costs you know, in, into the future. I think we really need to figure out how to support your agency as a whole um, to make sure that we can do this if this is a pathway that we move down, to, down through. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Okay, now high, high speed rail authority. Thank you, Mr. Chair and members, uh, for the opportunity to be with you today. My name is Ben Traposis. I'm the Northern California Regional Director for the California High Speed Rail Authority. And uh, before I begin, in response to Supervisor Wiener's comment about uh, uh, why now, how did we come to the discussion about level boarding now, as you're well aware, all mega projects like this are evolutionary in nature, and at the core of our discussion is the requirement really not to preclude future high-speed rail service in the Peninsula Corridor to ensure that all of the improvements that we are partnering with Caltrain on to complete the electrification project and PTC and all of those uh, components don't preclude future high-speed service in the corridor. And as we got into the analysis of the electrification project and the development of our planning for follow-on blended service, we began to see that there were some potential elements for precluding future service as a result of not having common level boarding. That's really what drove us to look at it far more vigorously as we are now, and that's why we're confident that we'll land on a solution that resolves the issue and allows us to land on a common level boarding platform and, and really maximize the level of integrated rail service that we can have in, in the quarter. The follow-on elements of, of blended service in the quarter, we touched briefly, Dave touched briefly on the fact that uh, we will be coming forward with our follow-on environmental review for the corridor for future high-speed rail service uh, to ensure that we're operating in truly an uh, integrated configuration. Some of the follow-on analysis that we'll be completing will include a full environmental review of stations, passing tracks, grade separations, maintenance facilities, and all of the support elements in order to accommodate a system that will allow us to operate high-speed trains and ultimately Caltrain trains at 110 miles per hour in the corridor, providing us the capacity to run up to 12 commuter trains per hour per direction and up to eight high-speed trains per hour per direction. Oh, no, excuse me, in total, it's written that way, so six I always say it the other way. Six Caltrain trains per hour per direction, four high-speed trains per hour per direction. Excuse me. I just wanted to briefly talk about the authorities' movement toward vehicle procurement and how we're looking at uh, soliciting the industry for our vehicles for the statewide system. We've released a request for expressions of interest to identify and receive feedback from, the, from interested firms to, who are interested in competing in the design, building, and maintenance of the high-speed train sets to use on the statewide system. The authority's order is going to include a base order of and, and options of up to 95 train sets. We're looking at procuring a single-level electric multiple unit, which will be a single-level train, and it's important to note that in order for trains, and this is an international standard, to operate at greater than 220 miles an hour, which is a requirement for our system, we need a single level electric multiple unit as opposed to the bi-level units that Mr. Couch is talking about because all of the equipment, the motorized equipment necessary to operate at 220 miles an hour all has to be under the floor. So we're left with a single level EMU that has a 3-2 seating configuration much like uh, air, 
airline seating, airplane seating. And we also, uh, not unlike Caltrain, need to have a proven technology that's been in service elsewhere in the world that we can uh, pursue. Um, the width is going to be roughly a little wider than the Caltrain trains that are currently being considered, uh, roughly between 10.5 and 11.2 uh, feet. And, uh, and the vehicle height, again, is aimed at in order to uh, operate over 220 miles an hour at roughly between 46 and 51 inches. Uh, some technical requirements, we're looking at 450 passenger seats uh, per vehicle and uh, as is the case with Caltrain, complying with all uh, laws including Buy America and other requirements in procuring the system. We're also looking at developing maintenance facilities along the corridor um, in order to support the uh, Bay Area system. There will be a heavy maintenance facility for the statewide system in the Central Valley, but we'll also need a smaller facility here in the Bay Area to manage the, uh, the trains along the uh, Peninsula Corridor. I have a question going back, and this sure. goes back to terminology. Uh -huh. uh, can you go back one more slide? Sure. Um, it says um, in the blue bullet a minimum of 450 passenger seats. Then it says first class space equivalent of 1,067 millimeters. Is that what that is? Yeah. The, uh, a pitch. What is a pitch? The, is the, essentially the space for the seating. Okay. Thank you. Okay. So the expressions of interest have been received. They, uh, the deadline was actually uh, late last month. Uh, we received responses from 10 manufacturers. The expressions of interest will continue to be received after the final. Uh, this doesn't really begin the procurement process. It's just an opportunity to begin a conversation with the industry and get an idea of what kinds of vehicles are possible for use for the statewide system. Um, we expect to issue a request for procurement sometime next year and uh, the firms that have submitted their expressions of interest will be given credentials to begin that question and answer participation process. And just finally, Dave alluded to the fact that we've begun to talk to the industry about possible vehicles that we can utilize to have to land at a common level boarding uh, platform. Uh, this is a very basic design that we're uh, presenting to the industry and utilizing. It's in fact a, a Swiss manufacturer, Stadler, has a vehicle akin to this and you'd uh, envision the two sets of doors that you see there, potentially one at 48 in or 50 inches and the other 25 inches. Having dual boarding on a vehicle like this, which is bi-level, and can provide much of the capacity that Caltrain requires in order to maximize their vehicle capacity uh, in a dual boarding configuration. And because of the opportunity to have dual doors, it provides that transitional opportunity. As Supervisor Kim, you had asked the question about how do you evolve from 25 to 50. At a single level electric multiple unit, you really don't have stairs from 50 inches. It's 50 inches, whereas at 25 inches, you have the stairs to get up inside the vehicles. There's no vehicle that really provides a drop of stairs on the vehicle side. So that's the difference, is that you really don't have that vehicle side option. You have to provide that improvement on the platform side, whereas with 25 inches, Caltrain could continue to use the existing platforms that they have today in much the same way that you board a gallery car today, you'd get on the 25-inch EMU. 
we don't have that same option at 50 inches, which is really what creates the disconnect. That was what I didn't understand. I thought we had to provide external stairs either way. But what you're saying is that with the 25-inch, there are internal stairs inside the vehicle, similar to what we see in Caltrain vehicles right now. Right. But the 50 inches don't provide that. It's just one level kind of entrance. Right. I had assumed that we had to provide external stairs for the 25-inch as well. That's why I was confused. Well, you did have it correct that eventually we'd have to do the same thing on the platform side for the 25 inches to have level boarding. Right. Okay. But it's an internal staircase that we were. Right. Okay. That makes sense. So that's really my update. I'd be happy to answer any questions. Thank you very much. Seeing none. Okay. Thank you. We appreciate the time. Okay. Supervisor Kim, is that the end of the presentations? Okay. Uh, thank you. I want to thank everyone for coming out. These are really hard issues as we uh, try to move towards the transportation future of the Bay Area, but it's good that we're having uh, these conversations. So we'll now move to public comment. Um, I have two public comment cards, although I think there are more than two people here to make public comment. Uh, Bruce and then Jim Lazarus. And if there's anyone else, uh, there are blue cards in the front, or you can just uh, speak after we call the names. Great, thanks. Uh, good afternoon, Chair Wiener, Supervisors Kim and Cohen. Uh, my name is Bruce Agat. I'm the Vice Chair of the TJPA CAC. Um, I'm pleased and thank you uh, for hearing this issue today with the questions and the depth of discussion um, on this matter. And this is critical as we are in the process of making decisions for multi-generational transportation infrastructure investment. Between the Transbay Transit Center, DTX, Caltrain Electrification, and high-speed rail, we will invest close to $75 billion. With this said, it is paramount to ensure the ability to maximize passenger capacity, accessibility, and operational flexibility. Uh, let's call these our foundational principles. With that in mind, uniform platform height and boarding level gives us the opportunity to achieve these fundamental foundational principles. This flexibility allows you to adjust service plans daily, hourly, weekly, et cetera, between the two systems to ensure you get the most value out of both. Is this possible? What is the best option? I don't know the specific answer. However, as we heard today, uh, there are examples either in North America or other parts of the world uh, where these similar issues have been addressed, and we need to understand what it takes to get us there. Um, we are pleased, I was pleased to hear today uh, Caltrain and High Speed Rail have been meeting and involved in productive meetings. Uh, we also understand the need to move forward in a timely manner on both Caltrain, electrification, High Speed Rail, and to minimize costs overall. However, please ensure no decisions are made. Uh, which could limit reasonable options and alternatives before this joint review is completed and can be taken under consideration by the various funding partners of the high-speed rail MOU. Any decisions made prematurely could limit possible options. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Mr. Lazarus, I want to call two more, more cards. Uh, Luis Serenaga from the uh, TA and then uh, Roland LeBron. Good afternoon, Supervisors. Jim Lazarus, San Francisco Chamber of Commerce, and I also had the pleasure of serving as chair of the Transbay Transit Center Citizens Advisory Committee for a few years before I was term limited off. Um, whatever you do, uh, I think the leadership of the peninsula in San Francisco cannot make the mistake of ending up with a system with differential heights of platforms. 
anything that can result in reduced flexibility at stations and certainly at the end of the line at Trans Bay has to be avoided. It wasn't a height issue, but those of us been around since Muni Metro went into Embarcadero Station knows that we've had end-of-the-line problems with capacity in San Francisco on Muni Metro. We thought it was going to be resolved with the extension down the Embarcadero, the portal going down for the T-Line and the end Judah. We still have problems at peak times at the end of the line at Embarcadero Center. We cannot do anything that has different heights and limited use of platforms in an already tight configuration at the Transbay Terminal. Uh, I'm sorry if it's going to be a problem ultimately or, or a difficulty for Caltrans, Caltrain to figure out the equipment they need to buy. But we know what the international standard is for high-speed rail, and that it seems to be approximately a 50-inch level fl floor with the propulsion systems underneath. And if that's what it has to be, then we need to find a way to make Caltrain's equipment compatible with the needs of statewide high-speed rail and the need to have an efficiently operating terminus in San Francisco. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Lazarus. Next speaker. Mr. LeBron? Or uh, good afternoon, uh, Supervisors. So, um, so a few things. No, to start with, a question on land use. Stratford City used to be an abandoned rail yard. The reason it was abandoned is that it kept getting flooded. And he used the, the dirt from the London tunnels to actually raise the entire thing by 30 feet. So you need to think about opportunities. On the Transbay Tunnel, you could be raising Treasure Island by 30 feet. For DTX, you could be raising the Bayshore Baylands by X number of feet. Now, on the subject of uh, uh, platform heights, in Europe, every high-speed rail must be able to arrive at either a 22 or a 30-inch platform. That's the law. End of discussion. Every station will have to be compatible by 2020. Um, the, the slides, unfortunately, showed Waterloo Station, which was abandoned in 2007. And the issue there is that the trains coming from Europe were 13-inch trains, but every domestic platform in the UK is 36 inches. So that's an issue. If you go to St. Pancras, the domestic high speed is compatible with the rest of the UK network, 36 inches, but the foreign trains from France are 30 inches, and they've got their own platforms. On the question of the high floor EMUs, um, there are many problems. Headroom, the way, the way they resolved that, they actually made these trains 15 inches higher, which means they will not be able to go to the tunnels. On the width, where they've increased the width by 66 inches, these trains, if you actually allow them to go in opposite directions in the tunnels, will actually hit each other. Um, the next problem they've got, if you go double-decker, these trains unlike the single levels, are unstable, so they use non-standard tracks. They use a different um, uh, set of uh, gauge. And um, one last point. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Zernaga, or? And then Shirley Johnson. Good afternoon, uh, Chair Wiener, Supervisors. My name is Luis Urinaga, San Francisco County Transportation Authority. Um, I'd just like to make a couple of uh, statements to clarifications. Um, 
you know, we have been a big supporter of both Caltrain and High Speed Rail for a very, very long time. These are projects that we have been dreaming about for quite a long time, so we're very thrilled that they're happening. Um, on the compatibility issue, this is one that the Transportation Authority, together with the city family, uh, we have been advocating for quite a while. Uh, in, all, in all deference to Dave, which is uh, relatively new uh, to, to the area, we started talking about uh, compatibility two years ago when the MOU was first put together and uh, Caltrain project was revived because it had been on the shelf because of lack of funding. So from those days, we have been encouraging uh, high-speed rail and Caltrain to have compatible height in the platforms. And um, we're very happy to see that now they are moving in the direction that they're moving. It looks like there's a light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. We're quite encouraged by, uh, by the information we have been getting. <clears throat> uh, in order uh, to, to uh, address one of uh, Supervisor Kim's questions, uh, <clears throat> it is true that the majority of the commuter rail double platform uh, double-decker vehicles uh, usually come in 25-inch. However, there are manufacturers that make them at 48 inches. Uh, the same thing is happens with high-speed rail. The most common is 48, but they also make them at a lower height. So there is room. There's room for compromise. In other words, there's less vendors, maybe, but they are available. Uh, as far as the the uh, Yeah, do you, can you just complete your last thing? Uh, as far as the, um, the diesel vehicles becoming obsolete, that is true. However, that will not happen until the platforms get raised. In other words, the vehicles will not become obsolete on the first day. It may be six, eight, ten years before the platforms are actually raised. So therefore, the, the diesel vehicles will be able to operate uh, during that time until uh, the platforms are finally raised. Uh, and uh, I agree. I agree with uh, with uh, Mr. Couch when he mentioned that CPUC needs to be addressed. They need to be, uh, however, not knowing what height we're going to be negotiating, it's it's kind of hard to approach him for that. So first, we need to come up with the height and then start the negotiation with CPUC. And Supervisor Kim has a question. Yeah. Yes. So um, in my questions about. Um, the 50 versus 25 inch and mixing them in with the current diesel fleet and I guess freight trains I, I, I thought I heard that the response from Caltrain was that that the there would be too many logistical challenges with mixing in both fleets so why is it that from your perspective you can bring in the 50 inch trains and still keep the current diesel fleet well what well, um, there are many solutions <laughs> available for uh, a train to be able to address multi multiple level platforms. Uh, you know, one of them is the two doors that we've been hearing about, the high door, lower door. Another type is movable steps, not unlike what we have on the metro system here, that the steps move up to a higher platform and then they create a steps for a lower platform. I see. That's also a, a possibility. Uh, so it's all a matter of maybe Maybe the right approach is to basically ask the vendors to provide 
a solution for the problem. I see. Uh, you know, we have this issue. We're going to have this high platform now. We're going to need the trains to operate for so many years at this height and then go to this other height. What do you propose? And have, have the industry come up with an idea. What, what is the best for them? And that will be part of the selection process. Okay. Thank you so much. I, I, I didn't want to say I looked through the TA report. That wasn't one of the suggestions. I, what I had read was that um, the suggestion was kind of looking to see how we can raise additional funds for them to completely you know, replace their fleet all at once and then keep the, the diesel trains, I think, from San Jose down to Gilroy and to have Caltrain sell. Um, you know, trains that they could sell um, that they weren't able to use because they had replaced 100% um, of the fleet. Correct. Uh, and we agree with you. We actually well, Actually, I'm, that I'm, I'm a, quoting your report. No, no, <laughs> that's that's, that's, that, is the, that is the solution that we, that we propose that we think is the best solution. I see. basically to go ahead and find the funding to help Caltrain buy the whole fleet now instead of just buying a portion of the fleet. I because see. It becomes problematic for them to be operating two different types of fleets, two different types of vehicles, uh, the maintenance, the operations. Uh, so it would simplify everything if they had a, uh, the whole procurement now. Great. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker. Thank you. I'm Shirley Johnson. I live in San Francisco. I'm a frequent Caltrain rider. And I'm really thrilled to hear that there's going to be level boarding on both Caltrain and high-speed rail. I bring a bike on board, so it's very important that the boarding is level. And it's also important that the boarding be compatible. And I think we've heard that over and over again. So basically, first of all, um, Supervisor Wiener, I'd like to thank you for your support of bikes on board. Thank you very much. I look forward to bringing my bike on board high-speed rail as well. But the question I have is, who makes the ultimate decision? Because we've heard arguments on both sides. It's a very complicated argument, very complicated situation. And who is it that makes the ultimate decision? I don't know who can answer that, but I hope there's some higher authority that has these groups work together so that we can have compatible platforms. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Haas. Chair Wiener, Supervisors, I'm Jim Haas. I've been involved in one way or the other uh, with Caltrain for 30 or more years. For much of that time, um, the city of San Francisco was like a poor relative. It kept making demands and wouldn't put up any money. But we now are in a position where, through the sales tax and more importantly, thanks to you all through Prop A, to have put money on the table and therefore I think we can ask and demand more things with uh, more responsibility. And I think the first thing we need is a unified management for Caltrain that focuses on the train and that the other activities that are currently take management time running the San Mateo buses and others are shutted off to another person. Secondly, I think the city's uh, participation in the Caltrain board has to be upgraded and made more aggressive to make sure that our positions are well known and uh, we uh, succeed. Uh, thirdly, uh, the, you've heard about the platform issue. I don't need to say anything more, except that I would note that if we end up with two different heights and platforms, I am told that at the Millbrae station, the high-speed rail uh, program would have to build an underground tunnel under the existing station at a cost of, you know, 700 million or something or other. Now, you know, deep down in a lot of the uh, administrators uh, at the high-speed rail and at uh, Caltrain, they don't really, I think, fully have confidence that we're going to get the thing downtown. 
Um, and they have backup plans for a station at uh, 4th Street. And we need to make sure we overcome that. And one of them is this Miller-Roos issue and being very aggressive. I presume, you know, I think we have to assume there'll be a lawsuit, but we have to lean on all the other developers not to participate. And I have uh, um, said that to one development group. And then lastly, uh, what, what I told you um, in, earlier in the year about how we need a more consolidated city focus on all of this, um, because it's being run by disparate agencies and disparate part, there needs to be a coordinating body, and I hope you Thank you, Mr. Haas. And the train will come downtown, and let there be no doubt about that, and, uh, and I, uh, I don't think it's worth having alternative plans because it's going to happen. Um, is there any additional public comment on item number two? Seeing none, public comment is closed. Uh, Supervisor Kim? You. I, I'm sorry, I did actually have one question for high-speed rail. Um, and I, I mean, this is a question for, for all the parties as well, but as we look at um, a uniform boarding platform vehicle um, for both agencies, are we also discussing um, <laughs> what the potential sources of fund to pay the difference in costs would be for Caltrain? And, you know, I, I think our last um, speaker brought up some of the additional costs that might occur for high-speed rail yeah. if we did go into the two-level um, platforms. Yes. As uh, Casey Fromson pointed out, we're talking amongst the nine funding partners, MTC, the uh, counties, uh, Caltrain, et cetera. But we're also looking at what the follow-on investments for future high-speed service in the corridor will require. Mm -hmm. And in order to get to that integrated rail service, there is more than some logic to expedite that investment so that we're addressing some of these issues, platform stations and others, that will inure to the benefit of future integrated rail service in the corridor, advance those uh, investments to a time that allows us to address this issue directly. Are there specific sources that we know that we can look to? Well, certainly the advent of cap and trade gives us some flexibility to do that, right. to look at the possibility. Um, so that's what we're in the process of doing. Thank you so much, uh, Mr. Traposi. And um, I know that this is going to be an ongoing dialogue, and we're just one of the counties that is super interested um, in this alignment issue. And I know that there, it's a regional issue, and so there are probably a number of different perspectives from, um, from a variety of counties. But I think certainly from San Francisco, there's probably a unified position that we'd like to see uniform um, boarding platforms for our vehicles, um, allowing us just the greatest alignment and also hopefully um, the most affordable cost in the long term um, for our system as we modernize. And so I do want to appreciate all the agencies. It is a very challenging issue, and I think you were able to bring up why technically it is so challenging for us to move into, um, um, into kind of a unif unified system. But I just want to say, and a, you know, I'm very appreciative of the work that we're trying to see what is possible instead of just outlining the challenges as to why we can't do it, um, but we're actually saying, well, how can we make it happen and, and exploring um, the viability. And I certainly am very committed um, from our end in the city um, to make sure that we are helping in terms of the funding gaps for Caltrain. Electrification is absolutely a priority. We know it's possible, and I know that there's a little bit of urgency with which Caltrain needs to move forward um, because you're already at capacity. Congratulations on, 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 meeting, on me meeting those numbers. It's great that so many folks are riding our public transit system um, to get our 
around. Um, so I'm hoping that we can um, make a, a motion to continue to the call of the chair. Um, it would be, um, I think, a, you know, a good use of our time to get an update um, in the next couple of months um, here, um, here in San Francisco. Thank Great. you. Great. Thank you, Supervisor Kim. Uh, Supervisor Kim has made a motion to continue item two to the call of the chair, and we will take that motion without objection. Thank you, everyone. Okay, Madam Clerk, can you please call item number three? Item number three is an ordinance approving an extension of an interim zoning moratorium in the proposed Central South Market Plan area. And Supervisor Kim is the author of item number three. Thank you. Um, this is uh, just a continuation on um, the interim moratorium extension on production, distribution, and repair conversion in the proposed Central South of Market Area Plan. Um, this was already introduced um, in the beginning of September, um, but it, um, in the first vote, it was only able to toll for a certain number of days, and now this will be able to continue it um, for the rest of the year. Um, I do have some amendments to, minor amendments to introduce um, that the city attorney has distributed copies um, to committee members, um, but I'm happy to do that until after public comment. Okay. Um, so at this point, we'll move to public comment, or is there no presentation? Great. Um, is there any public comment on item number three? Being none, public comment is closed. Thank you. So um, uh, the amendment that I'm proposing, one is on page 5, um, lines 25. Um, the interim zoning moratorium shall remain in effect for 22 months and 15 days from the termination date of ordinance number 210-14 or until the date that permanent controls are adopted um, and in fact and in effect to address the conversion of PDR in a manner that better conserves neighborhood character in the identified area, whichever occurs first. And so, um, uh, Mr. Givner, this is the only amendment that I see. Um, you had uh, stated there may be one other. There is one other amendment just uh, cleaning up a typo, I think, on page 3. Uh, but it's it's no need to read it into the record. It's, it's in the copy that's been distributed. Okay. Um, Maybe on page two, I don't have it in front of me. Thank you. Um, so again, this has already been before the um, Land Use Committee and the full board. This is, again, just um, the final extension of the interim moratorium extension. And I want to thank um, the committee for your support um, in September. Great. Uh, thank you. Um, okay. So uh, we have an amendment proposed by uh, Supervisor Kim. And can we, we'll take that amendment without objection. And then uh, kind of a motion to forward item three to the full board with positive recommendation. So moved. Okay, uh, and that will be the order. Madam Clerk, can you please call item four? Item number four is a resolution approving your authorization, authorizing an agreement for real estate, real property conveyance of land located at 600 7th Street. Uh, Supervisor Kim. Thank you. Um, and so we do have. Um, uh, Mr. Updike here from Department of Real Estate and also the Mayor's Office of Housing. Um, I believe this is actually the second uh, land dedication for affordable housing um, that the city is, is undergoing, and this is for a parcel in District 6, um, 607th Street, um, also affectionately known as the concourse, um, the musical concourse, a public, public assembly site. Mr. Updike. Thank you, Supervisor Kim. Uh, Chair, good afternoon to you. So this item uh, would approve a conveyance of a parcel of 37,800 square feet 
uh, of land to the city for future affordable housing development, as Supervisor Kim noted. Uh, under planning code section 419, an eastern neighborhood residential developer has an option to satisfy uh, all or part of their inclusionary housing requirements through the dedication of land uh, that's deemed suitable to yield a required number of housing units. Uh, in this case, the developer, which is Archstone Concourse LLC, whose general partner is Equity Residential, plans to develop 300, uh, excuse me, 432 units at 801 Brannon and 239 units at 1 Henry Adams. Here are those two locations on the overhead and elects to satisfy all of the inclusionary housing requirements at 1 Henry Adams and a portion uh, of those at 801 Brandon by dedicating to the city this uh, roughly three-quarter of an acre site, which uh, we, through the Mayor's Office of Housing Community Development, have certified can yield 150 units of affordable housing. Uh, this property is valued at $24,750,000. Transaction, of course, again, pursuant to the code provision, occurs at $1. Uh, the developer also intends to provide 55 units of affordable housing on-site at 801 Brandon as part of the 801 Brandon uh, development. And again, although I know you're very familiar with this site, there's a look at it in an aerial shot of 801. Uh, one Henry is just below uh, the picture, just off that. And then for better perspective on which site the city is receiving as a part of this, you can see this is a uh, site plan which shows on the right side of the plan the future housing uh, to be located there. This gives you perspective on how it is incorporated as part of the overall design plan. So the developer would deliver the property to the city after demolition, after remediation with certain curbside improvements made along with undergrounding of utilities. Uh, pollution insurance will be maintained by the developer and deed restrictions on the two private development properties ensure all buyers or tenants are notified of the future affordable housing projects. There are no surprises when the Mayor's Office of Housing project moves forward adjacent to the market rate housing project. Uh, all transaction costs are covered by the developer along with uh, costs and resources needed to subdivide the property to actually create the affordable housing parcel to be delivered to the city. Uh, from a timeline perspective, we anticipate the city would take title to the property in approximately 2017 after the 801 Brandon project is complete. Uh, development of the affordable housing project would subsequently occur as funds are available. Uh, Mayor's Office of Housing staff is working on that uh, funding stream issue now. Uh, all the requisite planning approvals uh, can be found in your package uh, based on the final environmental impact report and the large project approval and CEQA findings, uh, which were referenced in the Planning Commission motions of January 24th, 2013. Uh, again, all of those in your package and in the enabling uh, resolution before you for consideration. And of course, uh, as you mentioned, I am joined today by Mayor's Office of Housing staff. If you have any technical questions, any of us would be happy to answer them. Thank you very much, Mr. Optic. At this point, um, we will open up item number four for public comment. Is there any public comment on item four? Seeing none, public comment is closed. And uh, Supervisor Kim, could I have a motion to forward item four to the full board with positive recommendation? Yes. Um, okay. 
So I'd like to make that motion, but I uh, do want to thank uh, Department of Real Estate and also Mayor's Office Housing. I know that um, Lydia Ellie is here as well, um, and also our developer um, for working on, on on making this part of the Eastern Neighborhoods Plan a reality. And certainly we know the price of land is, is incredibly expensive, and that is only actually <laughs> increasing over time. And so um, it's, it's great to know that we will have site control to be able to build 150 units of affordable housing on the site into the future. Um, so I'll make a motion to move forward with positive recommendation. Uh, thank you very much, and we will take that motion without objection. Okay, um, Madam Clerk, will you please call item number five? Item number five is an ordinance amending the health cut requirement of gas station bathrooms. Uh, Supervisor Farrell is the author of item five, and Jess Montahano from his office is here. Hi, good afternoon, Supervisors. Jess Montahano, aide in the office of Supervisor Mark Farrell. Sorry, Mark couldn't be here personally today. Um, just going to give a very brief overview of the legislation in front of you and how it came to be. Uh, back in April, our office announced a scholarship opportunity for undergraduate and graduate students across the city called Reimagine SF. The scholarship opportunity asks students to interact with policy areas that they care about and submit suggestions for new laws or provide suggestions to update outdated laws. Uh, we, they did this on a new website that the Mayor's Office of Civic Innovation, our office and a national nonprofit, the Open Gov Foundation, uh, helped to create called SanFranciscoCode.org. It launched last year and is a more modern website for city's laws and codes that, again, provides for that direct commenting on the specific sections of the codes. Um, the gas station bathroom ordinance uh, stems directly from a comment on the health code from a student at San Francisco State, Cooper Vite, uh, who felt that the current requirement that gas stations provide separate toilet facilities for men and women was too costly and onerous for small business franchisees who often own these gas stations across the city. Uh, Supervisor Farrell agreed and in turn agreed to propose um, to turn Cooper's suggestion into law. Uh, again, it's unanimously supported by the Small Business Commission. It simply strikes a requirement in the health code that gas stations provide separate to toilet facilities for men and women and updates what Mark felt was an outdated section of the code to allow gas stations to provide one unisex bathroom moving forward and it will only apply to new gas stations being proposed. Uh, the proposed law on the scholarship opportunity was all about encouraging an often underheard voice at City Hall or City's youth to participate in the legislative and policymaking process uh, here at City Hall. It was about showcasing how new civic technology tools can empower our residents to interact with their city government and to show how they can help policymakers listen to and remain accountable to those they were elected to represent. We're a firm believer that technology and its tools uh, can be a powerful mechanism to increase civic engagement citywide uh, and believe that this law is an example of that. I'm happy to answer any questions that you may have and respectfully ask for your support today. Thank you. Supervisor Kim. Um, I did have a question on this sure. only because I know this applies to only future gas stations, but we have an issue with a gas station in our district that doesn't provide bathrooms 24 hours okay. despite operating 24 hours. And I, I know that I'm, I'm just, I didn't know we had an ordinance on this. Sure. And so I'm reading this for the first time last night, and it says at all times. Does that mean that when the gas station is is open that they must provide a bathroom? Uh, I might defer to the city attorney here, but I would assume so, yes. Okay. And, and where, where would the enforcement lie um, for this legislation? Who would we call to ensure that our gas stations are providing bathrooms full-time? Because it, it has been an issue at night when people are getting gas and then they pee, you know, residential areas <laughs> near gas stations. And so um, would, we, would we be calling Department of Public Health on this? It, Deputy City Attorney John Givner, the ordinance actually does not provide for any particular department to enforce. The, the ordinance that the supervisor is amending was adopted 
many years ago, um, which is probably what qualifies it as 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 one of, part of the cleanup project, um, and uh, was really related to, to fire code implementation as opposed to health implementation. So uh, the the board could adopt an ordinance uh, giving DPH specific enforcement authority. Yes. It's not really clear what happens if a gas station is violating this obligation currently. Would, would this be a substantive amendment if we were to work on it this week before um, it comes to the full board on Tuesday? Because um, I would really like to, I, as long as we're going to pass this yeah, at the full board. Yeah, of course. I don't, I, think, I don't think the supervisor would have any problems to add any friendly amendments or anything like that. And, and in terms of, of the process-wise, the uh, if you wanted to just uh, add a requirement that, that DPH oversee and ensure compliance with, with this uh, mandate, that would not be substantive. You could do that at the board and still pass it on first read next Tuesday. If you wanted to add in a penalty structure, that would require additional hearings at the board. I see. I'm actually interested in both, um, but I think at minimum it would be great to um, have it clearly delineated which department would be responsible for the enforcement of this measure, because it's certainly an issue today, but I, I definitely support this. Um, I, I know in general beyond kind of the the burden to small businesses, um, this is was certainly an issue when I was on the Board of Education moving towards more unisex bathrooms um, to allow for students that are gender questioning or transgender to not have to choose which bathroom that they are, 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 are utilizing and, and also, you know, the, the kind of the peer pressure that comes with that. So I think that this certainly makes sense for a number of different reasons. I'm happy to support that, but hopefully we can work with your office um, on some of the follow-up pieces. Yeah, of course, we'd be happy to. And we, we could make that motion as an oral motion today, and then it would be drafted in time for the Thursday board, packet, board agenda. Right. Yes, you, you could make the you could make a motion to to provide that DPH has oversight authority um, today, and yeah, we could we could work that up for Thursday. Okay. The, the penal, if you wanted to add in penalties, as as I mentioned, that would require probably follow up legislation or else continuing it at this at this meeting. Okay, I, I, I want to be deferential to the offer because author because this is something that has just come up um, for me. Um, I'd like to propose the amendment um, to provide the. Um, uh, the DPH would be the enforcement mechanism um, for this legislation. I would like to work on a penalty structure, and I really defer to the author in terms of whether he'd like to have the state committee and we can work this out, or if he'd like to pass it at the full board and we follow with trailing legislation. Um, I think, you know, we'd be more than willing and cooperative to work with you. Um, we're not in any rush to pass this ordinance anytime at the board, so if we can ask, uh, add something in that's more amenable to all of our colleagues, we're happy to do that. I guess my, my suggestion would be to make uh, the amendment today the non-substantive amendment to say that DPH oversees and then uh, we can pass the legislation and then have trailing legislation perhaps on the penalty structure. Not, yeah. not big deal for me. And I think yeah. it'd be open to that option too. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the motion then is, uh, is uh, an amendment uh, to provide that the Department of Public Health uh, will oversee um, this ordinance. Uh, and can we take that amendment without objection? Okay, that will be the order. And uh, can I have a motion to forward item five to the full board with positive recommendation? So moved. Okay, uh, without objection, uh, that motion is adopted. Great, thank Madam, you. Madam Clerk, is there any additional business before the committee? There's no further business. Then we are adjourned. Thank you.